and we got halfway to school and it started to get hot and the 15 kilometers so it wasn't very it wasn't far it overheated in that time and it, well a pretty thick buffalo grass too so it was clogging up the radiator the car overheated and it was starting to get like hot hot inside because in the toyota tribos the motor's like under the seat and so we had to pull up and we lifted the seats up in the car and we sat around and we thought well we can't open the cap radiator cap because it'll burn us so we just got to sit here and let it cool down so we sat under a tree and threw a tennis ball around for a couple of hours. G'day and welcome back to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and as always, thank you so much for joining us. I don't think we touched on it last week, but we've just ticked over our three years of podcasting and it has been incredible just to get a front row seat to these conversations and chat with different people every week and take these stories to you. If there's something that stands out, it is that in the ordinary is where we find the extraordinary. And I think the impact and the ongoing conversations that we hear from people who are involved or have listened to it is um, bloody cool to be part of. Today, I'm sitting down on Wadarung country. I'm recording this one in between traveling the countryside, which has been awesome, taxing and mostly enjoyable. Now, today I'm sitting down with one half of the Four Daughters, Bonnie and Molly Penfold are back in their family beef business and their brand Four Daughters. Now, you might know parts of their story, but I wanted to find out a whole lot more about them. So we touched on their early influences and how they used to drive themselves to school from like the age of eight through the paddocks. Um, it's a super fun chat as we sit down with them. I think what's really interesting is that their parents really supported and encouraged all the four daughters to pursue their own careers outside of agriculture. I think for this, this is allowing them to come back into the business, but also for Bonnie, she's able to be a school teacher a couple of days a week as well. So it gets them off the farm and allows them to kind of juggle that career as well. We touch on what they learned during their time as guest podcast hosts, not with us, maybe that's something we can do in the future, and the challenges and opportunities that they've uncovered and learned through running a direct-to-consumer meat business. So, let's just get on into it. Firstly, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I know you guys have done a little bit of hosting on the Australian Ag podcast, so I'm excited to sit down with both of you. Thanks, Ollie. It's exciting to get to chat to you as well, especially now I've met you in person. It's nice to chat via Zoom. And if you guys are so good at saying the same thing, Bonnie, do you want to introduce Molly? Molly, you introduce Bonnie. Tell us a little bit about who each of you are. Beside me is Moll. Um, Molly is 23 this year. Um, she's a pretty great second sister. Uh, she's a very talented girl. She's studied a Bachelor of Accounting externally um, through Armadale Uni. Uni. And um, I don't know how much of it she's using now, but she's doing a great job of keeping the show running here and feeding cows and doing cattle work and all the other things in between and taking a bit of mum's work on in terms of doing a bit of office stuff. So Moles are very talented in the office, out of the office. She's a fantastic little emotional support person too. When I'm getting frazzled, she calms me down, helps me, helps me unstress myself and solve the problems when everything's just starting to go to my head. So very lucky. Now you can hang a bit of dirt on her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you um, set the bar pretty high there, Bon. Um, so Bonnie is my oldest sister. She's the oldest of the four daughters. She's 25 this year. Um, and She's not just a farmer either. She's, um, she is a farmer and she's a bloody good one. Um, but she's also a primary school teacher and she's taught, um, at both of the local primary schools, one where we attended and then another one where 
mum used to teach and grandma used to teach um and she does that two or three days a week just to you know fill in her days and and um all the other teachers at the school go oh you must be so lucky having so many days off and bonnie goes this is an this is only my like part-time job teaching the rest of it is my full-time job and i do not get any time off (laughs) so like is it what's the primary passion bonnie teaching or farming 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 i definitely to start with i always said that i wanted to teach kids and feed cows and that was sort of my goal and that's always what i've said i've wanted to do whether that's just seeing your parents do those sorts of things in life and wanting to do that as well um, and then once I've started teaching kids, while I do love it and I enjoy parts of it, I definitely prefer, I'm an outdoors person, so I definitely prefer being outside and working. Um, the classroom is nice every now and again, but yeah, I'm definitely more of the outside kind of person. Those hot summer days, it'd be all right, wouldn't it, sitting in the aircon? <laughs> it is, but I still feel like I'm missing out and then I feel bad being in the cool while everyone else is out working and I feel like I should definitely be there helping. Oh, uh- no way, absolutely lavish it up. <laughs> <laughs> so teaching's in the family, was it just the, the obvious career path for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, Mum and Dad sort of said to us early on, like, we want, like, you can come back here. It was never a case of parents being like, no ag, there's no, no career in ag. They're like, there's so much career in ag and you're more than welcome to come back here. We'll be here. There'll be work here. There'll be a business here for you to take over and run and it, it, it's all here but you've got to do something else as well in case it all falls over. So I think mum and dad set that standard from a very young age that you could do, you have to do something else and then you can come back to this. So whether that be a teaching degree, an accounting degree, learning to fly or doing a trade or something so that if for some horrible reason, everything does go wrong within your agricultural business or something breaks down later in life, you've always got a job you can fall back on. So yeah, we were definitely pushed to do something. And for me, teaching was a good, easy one. I could do it anywhere I wanted to. And in a rural area, particularly, it's um easy to get a teaching job because everyone's looking for teachers in the bush. So it just made sense for me as my fallback option that we were all told we had to have. So that was my choice of teaching, I suppose. And I just want to know firstly a little bit about your community, Malt. So you able to tell us like whereabouts in the world are you? Obviously Queenslanders because we've got the pool and school. Yes, <laughs> yes. So we're, um, well, we're in southwest Queensland, well, we're sort of south central Queensland. We're two hours south of Roma. Um, our closest town is Meandara. Um, and we've got, so we've got two places here, which um, was dad's original family place where he was born and raised. Uh, and then we've got, we live on the place just up the road from there. We've got another place down towards St. George where we run a few cows. And then we've also got another place way out west of Blackall at Yarraka. Um, so that just stretches us out a bit um, and a good 800 kilometre drive out there to check the cows. So we don't get out there very often, but you know, that helps that dad has a chopper and he can fly out there and check them. And so what's Mandara famous for? What would you say the town, if for all the out-of-towners, what is the big attractions of Mandara? Well, it has a army museum. That's a new one, actually. Um, well, it's, it's well, probably, 15 years yeah, old now, but it seems new. new. Um, <laughs> but that's probably all about the town um yeah there's it's not a it's not a huge town it's um it's sort of a drive through but you don't you still actually have to turn off the main road to drive through it so you know it probably doesn't get that much traffic it's fairly local community everyone 
goes to the bowls club and, you know, it's a pretty simple life for me and Nara, I think. Uh, is that the school where you're teaching at, Bonnie? Uh, no, I teach at Teal So that's a school that's just a school on the side of the road. There's nothing else around it. Um, and it's either 15 kilometres from our place through the paddock. Our uncle owns the property between us and the school or 40 kilometres around the road. So nowadays I drive around the road because I have a licence, um, which is really handy. But when we were kids, we used to drive through the paddock um, in old cars and old utes that dad gave us as each one broke down. So we um, like to drive, driving ourselves to school every day. Get out and get the gates and, and then we'd pull up 100 metres from the school and walk along Bitchman to get to school. Because we weren't allowed to drive on the main road. So always, and if you timed it right, you could sort of get a lift with one of the other families going past at that point. So save yourself walking the 100, 200 metres. How old were you when you started driving yourself to school? Uh, I was 10, and so Mole was eight, Jemima was six, Tilde was four. So Tilde wasn't coming to school, so it was the three of us. Yeah, it was. And we had an old Hilux chute, and Bonnie had to sit on her school bag to see over the steering wheel, um, and then she couldn't reach the clutch at that point, so she had to slide herself under the steering wheel when she had to put the clutch Pull myself down. And I had to change the gears because she couldn't do that at the same time. So we, it was a real team effort of our first driving to school, I suppose. And then eventually the cars got better and better. We had even an FM transmitter in one of the cars and we used to play some Taylor Swift off our little Nokia. <laughs> and it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Very flash. What's the... Our cars had a tendency to overheat. So we also learnt a fair bit about checking radiator water and carrying a big water bottle with us everywhere we went. So... Do you reckon your dad stitched you up early there, just knowing that, oh, if they come back on the farm, they need to learn about checking oil, checking water, and this is how we'll do it. Well, he did know right all about that, that's for sure. So lots of practice with that stuff in our old cars. What's your best best story or memory from that? I've got, I've probably got two. Um, we, one day we um were going to school and we had an old Toyota Trago at that point, which we'd painted all the different sides of and it overheated and so we'd top it up every morning and obviously one morning we forgot to top it up and we got halfway to school and it started to get hot and the 15 kilometers so it wasn't very it wasn't far it overheated in that time and it well a pretty thick buffer grass too so it was clogging up the radiator the car overheated and it was starting to get like hot hot inside because in the Toyota Trigos the motor's like under the seat and so we had to pull up and we lifted the seats up in the car and we sat around and we thought well we can't open the cap radiator cap because it'll burn us so we just got to sit here and let it cool down so we sat under a tree and threw a tennis ball around for a couple of hours and then by this point the principal had called mum and said have the girls other other girls coming to school today and mum's like yes they're coming anyway mum had just set off looking for us because we hadn't showed up at school and and then we arrived at school and we were like to the principal we're here and she's like why why are you so late and we had to sit under a tree for a couple of hours so then she called mum and said, don't worry, they've made it. They just had a hot car. So that was the issue with that one. That was about- my favourite car story. What was yours? <laughs> Chasing pigs? Yeah, well, it was probably when um, we saw goats and Matilda learned that it wasn't very smart to jump out of the vehicle. Um, but, you know, she, she's figured that you've got to hit the ground running, not just at a standing pace when you, the car is still moving. But she was going to catch those goats, but they got away on her. <laughs> she got pulled up pretty quick, didn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It pulled her up, took a bit of skin off her knees, and I think she um, learned a very good lesson that day. You probably weren't even going too quickly, I wouldn't imagine. But yeah. <laughs> And so tell me a little bit about Matilda and Jemima, your other two sisters. Yeah, so Jemima is 
two years younger than Mole. So we're all innate two years apart, 25, 23, 21, 19. So Jemima's 23. Um, and she's, she came home after boarding school. We all went to boarding school at St. Peter's in Brisbane. And so when she came home, I was already home. Mole was already home. Um, and Jemima wanted to go and do her own thing. So she went up north to um, a family at Cloncurry, the Hakens at Cloncurry, and she worked with Drew and Annie there for a year and absolutely loved it. And so she came home at the end of the first year and said, I'm going back um, and went back for another year. So she worked up there, learned a few different skills with Drew and Annie and absolutely loved the experience and the social life and all of those things. Yeah. So after her two years with Drew and Annie, she came home um, and she's been studying a Bachelor of Agribusiness through Armadale externally as well. So we've got a little uh, donger set up up in the top of the garden with um, air cons and a little kitchenette. So anyone who's doing uni sort of just goes up there and works away at their uni without getting distracted by whatever everyone's doing down at the house and then out at the feedlot because otherwise you can get very sucked away very quickly. So she's doing that. Um, hated the first bit, I think, uh, and struggled with the idea that she had so much work to do that like uni didn't just happen. So was fairly miserable for the first semester, but then decided she had to push through it. And she's been really good since. Um, yeah, no, she's, she's also extremely capable and smart and clever and very, very good with cattle is probably her strength. She's good in the yards. Yeah. And then do you want to say something about Tilde? Yeah. yeah. She's all flying. Sounds like she's got the best job I've ever had. Yeah. Well, she's the youngest. She likes to push the boundaries and, you know, test the limits. Um, but she's, she, um, she's very, well, she, she's not very easy to get along with all of the time, but most of the time she's all right. Um, she's very independent, very individual. She's so herself. I suppose we're, we're all very similar, but I think. And Matilda was sort of the, the end one. We always used to tease her that she was adopted, um, even though we all look exactly identical. And um, and we, we'd gone through to her that much that when she asked Dad if she was adopted and he said no, she was like, don't lie to me. <laughs> You're telling me, Fibs, don't lie to me. I know you got me out of a rubbish bin at the hospital was the line, but um, she got over it eventually. Yeah, but she's um, she finished school. The year before last, so she had a year out last year where she worked at home with us, just um, seeing how she fits into the family business. She, um, Her work ethic really stood out last year, like she took on feeding jobs, so that was mainly her job every morning. She much preferred to feed the cows than to be in the yards working with them, um, and she likes operating machinery. She loves sitting on the excavator or, or the loader, just carting poo around, um, but she's... Um, She's yeah. very good at that too. Yeah. I think scenery um, operation. Yeah, yeah. So she, just another the last P in the pod, I suppose. Very all very similar. How many of you have your pilot's licenses? Uh dad, he's a pilot. He flies the chopper. Um, and then I've gone and done my recreational license. So I have a drifter in the shed. Um, it's not for any work purposes yet, really. I just fly around in it for a bit of fun of an afternoon when I get a nice still afternoon and knock off while there's still daylight. So. That's my little fun thing. Um, take the girls for a fly sometimes. And then Matilda's learning to fly. So she's gone and done her recreational license as well in a jab. And then she's trying to switch to GA so that she can hopefully get a job working somewhere in the north. Flying planes is her plan. Amazing. 
I was looking at the video of your little plane, what do you call a drifter? That thing honestly looks wild. It looks like a death trap from an outsider's perspective. (laughs) It's not, Ollie. It's really not a death trap. It's got the (laughs) biggest wingspan to weight ratio that you can get. So it's really just like a kite, like with a motor. So it's safe as houses. If the motor stops, we just glide down is the plan. Okay, But it's not going to. (laughs) Keep Keep the oil checked and the water topped up and you'll be right. Yeah, that's definitely the plan. There's a few other checks involved with the plane, but yes, that's generally the theory. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know a little bit about the family business. And so obviously with all four of you looking so alike, it could have just been called one daughter and you could just roll out someone else on each kind of PR campaign. But the four of you, at what stage did four daughters come about? And maybe just in a nutshell, what's been a bit of the history of how your parents have run the business and how that's like evolved as you guys came up? Yeah, so our business was originally, and we have always just fed cattle. Um, like had feedlots. So our whole life as kids, it was around feedlots and trade cattle, trade cattle and in the yards, buy cattle, feed them, sell cattle. So that's all we'd done and all we knew. Um, And then in 2018 at Beef Week, dad ran into a Chinese couple from Wuhan and they were wanting to buy Australian beef. And dad said, dad had always said sort of as a pipe dream, oh, if I export meat to China, I'll just, that'll be it. That'll be so cool. Make my millions. I'll make my millions. It'll be, it'll be me done. Like they'll be writing articles about me for sure. And so what year was it? This was 2018, but all through our life, he's always said that selling meat to China would be the best. Anyway, so he met this couple and they wanted to buy meat. And dad said, look, I can buy, I can, I can grow meat for you and sell you meat. Except you've got to buy the whole, whole body. Like we weren't into this cutting up or, you, you know, a container load of rumps or a container load of cube rolls. It just doesn't work like well, that. Because we just didn't have the supply. We were just a small family business. So we, yeah, and they were happy to work with us to um, to do that um, full cut um, of the beast. Yeah. So we sold them, yeah, whole whole bodies or whole full sets um, and started doing that. And then they, they came over and visited, Frank and Nisha, the couple we work with, uh, a few times and... They were so gobsmacked that we work outside, like the four girls, like everyone's just a bit blindsided when there's four of you and you all look the same. So that was a bit of a space out to start with. And then we all work outside and then come inside, cook dinner, get the washing off the line, just help out in whatever way. And for all of us um, in our area and in rural Australia and that's just so normal and doesn't sound interesting to you at all I'm sure but to them it was just so outstanding and far from what they'd seen that they were just like we have to call it something to do with the four girls like if you export this meat to us we want to call it four sisters or 
or something like that. And so then we went with four sisters and it was already taken in China. So we ended up with four daughters. So that's how the brand name came into being. And we were exporting meat to China. Turns out it didn't turn out to be quite the huge money spinner that dad always thought it was. It it was, it was good. It was a good business, no doubt, but COVID came along and disrupted that for us. So then Mel will tell you a bit about after that. Yeah. So obviously we were processing our beast and sending them to China and then when the COVID hit and China imposed an export, well, export ban from from Australia into China, um, and we were caught up in that. So that our our processor at NCMC weren't allowed to export to China, and therefore we had all we had. I think we had six hundred head of black cattle ready to go to China in the feedlot and nowhere to go with them because we couldn't get them killed and um, shipped over there. So that was a really big challenge, which. Um, we had to sell a lot of them domestically and sort of take a fair bit of a hit on them. Um, but yeah, throughout the years since we've we've tried to find more processes to get it back into China because the demand's definitely there and we've met a few more people in, in China that would, would be interested in the product. Um, but the hardest part is just finding processes and the logistics of getting it all there. over there. So. Mm. But then also in amongst all of this, we have um, created a domestic brand. So Four Daughters began as that export brand, but we diversified into the domestic market by creating what we call our Four Daughters Pink Box, which is a box of all the mixed cuts, um, a box of mixed cuts with the idea of utilizing the whole body. So we make 14 boxes out of one body and that utilizes um, nearly all cuts of the body. And we then pre-sell and deliver that to customers via our website um, once every two months sort of across southeast um, Queensland and we're just looking to go into Sydney in this next April delivery so that's exciting slash a whole lot more work but exciting all the same. I want to ask because it's something which I often chat about with different people when it comes to people sharing their stories but the view that I guess the Chinese business people took to you guys like actually what you see as ordinary is actually like really quite extraordinary to them and eye-opening and, and all of that like on reflection what what what's your take on that and I guess your views in terms of that just the, what we see as ordinary is actually like extraordinary and what were your takeaways of what they were telling you about that my takeaway is that we're super lucky I suppose that we have got the opportunity and then also and especially myself speaking from my own point of view like we've been given the opportunity and sort of encouraged along by mum and dad and other people around us to do something that other people see as extraordinary so I think that was my take on it that I was just so lucky that this actually is my life and I have this opportunity not only there but sort of like handed to you sort of encouraged along which has been really incredible like handed to you in the sense that you've still got to work for it but it's here and this can be your life if you want it to be so I was yeah I'm very proud and happy and lucky about that yeah well I think I think yeah I think you said exactly right Bon it's just amazing that we get to do what we do every day and I think it's actually a a little bit of a shame sometimes because well it's brilliant what you're doing through Humans of Agriculture, Ollie, and how you're actually, you are showing our ordinary 
and what what we believe is ordinary and and people are able to see the extraordinary in it so people that aren't from our industry or are from our industry but seeing it from a different perspective they actually get to see that extraordinary in our in our ordinary days and then that sort of flows back to you and you think wow like because otherwise you get caught up in the ordinary like when but then when other people tell you wow that's so extraordinary you're so lucky like you get that huge sunset every night and you get that huge sunrise every morning and here you are riding around on a bike followed by all your annoying little dogs like it it's good to hear that somebody else thinks it's extraordinary and it and it it levels you a bit it reminds you that what you've got is pretty great so it's yeah very humbling absolutely and and what about that direct relationship with the consumers what's it been like to get feedback and yeah what directly from consumers but also that input in terms of i guess maybe the, the questions that flow from that yeah definitely like i think um obviously direct to consumer production is not easy and every month we come back from our delivery and we go was it worth it do we do it again like it's hard work and every month when we do our delivery and we see our customers and get to speak to them and hear their praises of the meat and everything that they they just love to see us and speak to us and you know ask about the rain and to see those people take such an interest and actually believe in your product really gives you like it it hits you in the feels and it makes you realize what you are doing is actually making a difference um so i think that's probably my biggest takeaway from being able to have that contact with consumers and and explain like through our um bi-monthly newsletter which we email out to our customers just little bits of what we're doing on the farm or through our social media like we um, we're not very good at it, but we're trying our best to just portray a little bit of our everyday life um, and explain to people why we do what we do. I think that's our big thing. Yeah. But I was going to ask on that, like what's the, what's the most challenging part of that as well in terms of as part of the business, as part of the brand, you guys are, I guess, farmers first, but you're also then brand ambassadors and having to have this public facing profile. So what's the most challenging aspects of that? A challenging aspect, I suppose, I find is when people don't like what you do, which is it's in everything and everyone has it and you can't please everyone ever Like, and and you'll kill yourself trying to. So, But it still, it does really suck and, and everyone says that like you can have a hundred good things said to you, but then one person says, oh, your T-bones are terrible or couldn't even eat it, I had to feed it to the dog. And you're like, well. That's a lucky dog. Lucky dog, A, lucky dog, but B, a hundred other people ate it and said it was delicious, so maybe you need new teeth. I don't know. But you can't say that. You have you have to keep that to yourself, and that's the hardest part, I think. Like, I struggle to do that, keep it to myself, and I find that a little bit disheartening sometimes, but at the end of the day, you can't you can't please everyone. Yeah. Um, and we bring a cube roll home and eat it for dinner for the, the two nights after our meat delivery, and we go, geez, that's good meat. Like, we, we are producing a good product and we believe in it and we know so many of our customers do too so I think yeah we just got to come back to to that yeah it was going forwards but also another huge challenge is the social media side of it like I we get so caught up in our day-to-day and running a farming business as everyone else does like everyone knows how busy it is that you, get to take- you forget to take the photos that you need for social media. And then at the end of the day, when you come in and you're cooking dinner and you're having a beer and you're thinking, I do not want to, like, that's the last thing you want to do, sit down and 
explain like write out in an explanation what you've done for the day and then also try and do a bit of a push of a cell of a box or something like you just with all the hashtags yeah the hashtags is enough to do you in so that's a huge challenge the the social media side but but it has it has huge rewards as well and and it's pretty great to see people engaging with it especially people from city areas like when you put up that post of you're cementing and then the end photo is that the calves walked all through it and just left tracks the whole way through the concrete and you didn't find it until the next day. So it's a terrible mess. But that watching people engage with that content and, and see, get a glimpse of what your life actually is like is pretty cool as well. Yeah. Well, and for you in the social media space, when someone says that they don't like something, you could get really passively aggressively and just write something and go, I'm not going to hit send on that. I'll just delete yeah. that. <laughs> I just won't send that to them. Yeah. yeah. You guys should do a little segment on just like things people say. Take the mickey a little bit out of yeah, the, the, the good and bad. The best one was the dog park one, Molly. That was the bloke who yeah. said he couldn't eat it. So you got to tell your story about how he <laughs> came up and he looked like a man. You'd got to give it properly. Yeah, yeah. It was just, yeah, come along around a lot of, there's, there's a lot of different people in the world, but we're different to them, I suppose. Um, and yeah, we just had one old fella walk up to us one day. We were doing our deliveries. We, we have drop-off locations and we were pulled up at our Budrum drop-off on the Sunshine Coast, which is actually, it's next to a dog park. And so this one old fella walked up with his dog and he explained his story about how he used to be a butcher out west and, you know, and we're like, oh, well, we've we're farmers, we've produced a bit of meat, we've actually got a spare box if you want to buy it and, you know, see how you go. And then, um, yeah, he it whipped out his box. Velcro wallet, Molly yeah. said. And whipped out his Velcro wallet, paid for his um, $300 box of meat. First, there was more to the story. He said, I've got to go for a walk with my dog, so can you just wait mm-hmm. here and keep yeah. my box in your bridge truck? I think I've tried to actually block the memory, to be honest. <laughs> and then, yeah, anyway, so it, it was a very weird meeting to start with paid paid his money he came back and got his meat from for him and his dog because he he wanted to share it too i think and um and then the next delivery which we came back in two months time he was there again i don't know whether he planned to be there or he um was just it was just a coincidence but then he came up to us and and just sort of said couldn't even eat it like i i told us his story again about how he was a butcher and he knew a lot about meat and um and that it was just the worst meat he'd ever had and he had to feed it to his dog and then the best part was he went back there pe- like people were lined up to come and collect their box and then he went back through the line and was telling people oh no you can't buy this meat it's terrible meat it's terrible meat and often all these people had bought it like five times from us. so they're like all right okay see you later they're all like you can keep going to this old bloke it was it was a traumatic event but yeah. It was all fun and games. It sounds like you need to spend a little bit less, a little bit less time at the uh, at the dog park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where does the future of four daughters go from here? Well, let's let's fast forward five years. What's it look like? Well, I think well we're definitely all still going to be on the land, um, and we're going to keep trying to build our business. We've got we've got a month's Four Daughters is our domestic beef brand, our export brand. Um, we've also got, you know, a breeding herd and our feedlots to keep running. So obviously our our whole business plan, plan is is just to expand what we're currently doing um, to a size that all four of us plus mum and dad can can grow and, and achieve a very 
sustainable life, I suppose, whilst we're still um, either working together or maybe we'll, you know, we don't really know what the future is, whether we split up at, or still work together and to try and, you know, keep the business. It's, um, I think your five year plan, it, five, five is definitely like we're still, still be growing, but yeah, that's, I, we're definitely not going anywhere. So I think, I think that pretty well says it all. You might be running an agri-tourism business by that and Matilda can be flying your, your, your customers in from the Sunshine Coast, except for the dog man and um, <laughs> taking around the farms. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely an option. There's so many different options though, isn't there? So many different avenues you could take. And yeah, they change, your, your plan changes every Sunday when you sit down and have a beer, I think. Yeah, one, one week we're going to buy the pub and the next week we're going to start an agri-tourism thing and the next week. You know, we're starting a school camps program and none of it. And then next week it's all too hard and we'll just have to shut down. And we, uh, but in home, <laughs> that happens. You go through the ups and downs and, and you get through it. So, But every day we get up and feed cows. So the other pipe plans and dreams and crazy ideas come and go. Some stay, some get kicked out the door, which is probably where they belong. So if, if money was no obstacle, what would be the one thing that you guys would do? That's a good question. Buy more places, I think, is probably on the cards at the moment. Yeah. Buy more, whether they be a couple more breeding places, like bigger breeding places or a few closer ones here to sort of expand the feedlotting um, situation and backgrounding capacity um, closer to the feedlots. So, yeah, properties is probably big monopoly game, ultimately, if we had no money as an object. What about email? Yeah, well, I, I think that that's sort of mirrors my opinion at the moment like definitely trying to I think we want to try and breed um increase our breeder numbers so that you know we can all the cat I think ideally it would be amazing to every cow that you or every beast that you produce off our property would be a hundred percent um traceable from us so you know we've, we've raised the calf weaned it gone through the feedlot and that piece of steak on your plate was entirely produced by us would be amazing like we obviously do that but we don't have the breeder numbers for our production through the feedlot there at the moment so yeah to to buy more places and increase that would be ideal i think lovely i've got i've got a couple but fun more questions things, Ollie, if money was no object i mean a, a house at the snow would be nice like to go snow skiing once a year or something but cow property is probably more useful yeah. to us we chatted about it at the beginning but you guys were involved with the australian ag podcast god i'm giving them some plugs i'm generous for them. <laughs> you uh, are you podcasting shouldn't be shouting out too many other podcasts should they uh, that's right we're all friends maybe uh we can reciprocate it across the industry all the we, different podcasts it's a but nice idea what what was the best thing out of those episodes and, and different pieces that you did what what did you walk away with kind of at the end of that series and, and looking back on it uh what was the benefit to you being involved in those interviews? Um, benefit to me, I think hugely just was the skill of learning or getting the opportunity to be given the chance to podcast. So I would never go out and say, I'm going to start a podcast. A, I don't have the time and B, I, I probably don't see myself as quite good enough at interviewing, but it was great that someone gave you a mic and said, here, I have a go. Backed us, yeah. Who do you want to interview? And we gave through our list and they put their list up and we sort of picked our top 10. So it was, it was an incredible skill and an opportunity for me to get to have a go at that, which I really enjoyed. Um, and also chatting to everyone 
about what they do. That was really fascinating. Yeah, all the different things are like we talked for everyone from from dairy farmers to um, head stock women, and you know, like all throughout the industry, we we had um, a flower farmer. Yeah, that was really interesting. And the, what are the the dancers? The oh yes, the all oh, the boot the hoedown yeah, hoedown girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was very interesting just to see what other people are doing and and um, how different it is across the whole of Australia. Like it's not just what we're doing right here in our little patch of Queensland. It's it's so much bigger than that. Okay, two more questions. One comes from a recent guest, and this is just there's no right or wrong answer. You can just make it up. But what do you think the price of a two-litre bottle of milk is going to be in 10 years? Oh, it's so I don't know what a two-litre bottle's worth now. We buy three-litre bottles. There's a few of us in this house, Ollie. Oh, well, let's go with three litres then. <laughs> um, what are they now? Three, four something? Oh, three sixty, is it? Yeah. Um, in 10 years. Might have to stop drinking milk or get a dairy cow. For <laughs> Seven dollars? Yeah. No, I reckon it's got to do more than go 100%. It's, so, yeah. In the last 10 years, it wouldn't have gone 100%. But every Yeah, but the cost of everything great. is just going through the roof. So I, re- I reckon let's fi- pull a number. $15. $15? Yep, that's $5 a litre. That's not much. Shivers. Genius. Okay. That's, and that's, that's, that's a bit more than the price of We're going to be uh, drinking white easily. coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to have some dairy farmers <laughs> who are trying to be really friendly to try and sell you some milk, but yeah. we know what you're willing to pay now. No, well, that's that's 10 years we're talking, not right now. Yeah, well, they got time to work on it. Yeah. <laughs> Another question to ask everyone. I'm interested in hearing it from your perspective, but if you get the chance to go and chat to your 10 students, and I'm sure you guys do chat to plenty of younger people coming through, but people who have no background in agriculture, why should they consider a career in and around ag? You can do whatever you want. There is so many different careers in ag, and it's such a fantastic industry to be a part of because of the people. I think the people you meet in the ag industry are so happy to help and quick to give advice. Sometimes that's good advice, sometimes that's bad advice, but so happy to help and um, give you time. So I think if you want to be in an industry where you are surrounded by good people and you can do uh, like the widest range of jobs you could ever imagine, ag is definitely a place for you. And I think then if, if to give them advice, if they are going into ag is ask I suppose it's the same as anything but ask as many questions and be like really want to learn and if you want to learn people just just want to help Mm. so I think that's the key is to ask questions try give everything 110 percent and give everything a go don't go oh no I won't do that oh it's a bit scary or I don't think I can if someone says do you want to jump on a horse even if you haven't done it say yeah sure you're gonna have to tell me how but absolutely like just say yes to yeah all the opportunity and ask questions yeah don't act like you know it that's a good one i think it was mitch Hyatt. we nearly went again i think it was mitch Hyatt who said like a very similar piece of advice and he was like he got it when he was young it was like if something comes up to say yes and then work out everything else off it, the back of that yeah well work it out and ask say yes i want to do it but i don't know how so absolutely i want to have a go but you're going to have to teach me like yeah. A little bit of humility. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Ask for help because 
Yeah, there's nothing more stupid than being like, yeah, yeah, I can do this when you have no idea and then going and buggering up the job completely so somebody else has to do it. Like if you just ask for help straight away. Just a little pointer, you know. You save so much time and you don't look stupid. Wise words. Wise beyond your years. <laughs> I've looked stupid a few times. I'm just, just talking from experience. Yeah, no, I've definitely been there too. But Bonnie and Molly, thank you so much for joining us for a bit of a chat. Well, thanks for having us, Ollie. It's been lovely. Yeah, really great. Thanks for having us, Ollie. I'll let you guys get on with your day and I'm sure we'll cross paths again soon. Sounds good. Absolutely. If you're enjoying our podcast, we'd love for you to share with a friend, follow it along and keep on tuning in. If you've got any ideas for guests, please reach out to us. Hello at humansofagriculture.com. Other than that, look after yourselves. Stay safe. Stay sane. Can't wait to join you next Wednesday. See you guys. Bye.